Hello, and welcome to Silver Screen Superheroes. I am your host, Alex Case, sitting in for Blaine Dowler. This month, we are finishing up our look at the Blade film trilogy with the third film in the series, properly titled Blade Trinity. This film was written and directed by David S. Goyer. Goyer had previously penned the first two films in the series. However, he was in the director's chair for this one. And this film also, due to conflicts that Goyer had with the star of the series, Wesley Snipes, returning once again, the film turned out poorly. Although, and we'll get into this a bit later, not all of these problems can be laid at the feet at the conflict between Goyer and Snipes. So let's take a look at the cast real quick. Once again, Goyer, writer and director, sole writer and director on this. With Blade 2, there was some input from Guillermo del Toro in the screenwriting process and that sort of thing. Uh, as far as production credits, um, nothing particularly new in the production department. There's no new producers added. So got my mind. Music for this film was done by two actually fairly not notable composers. We have uh, Ramin Chab. Dejawadi, whose last name I horrifically mangled, who was best known at present for contributing music to Iron Man, Game of Thrones, as well as working with Guillermo del Toro on Pacific Rim. He would also go on to do music for Blade the TV series, so appropriate that they're bringing back on that. It also includes musical contributions by the RZA of the Wu-Tang Clan. RZA had done some soundtrack music, uh, soundtrack work before this, including on the film's film Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, and some of his compositions had been included in other films as well, but more in the form of catalog music as far as taking from his soundtrack, from his album work, as opposed to work being particularly composed for purposes of the film. As far as the cast itself goes, Wesley Snipes returns as Blade, Chris Christopherson returns as Whistler, and we have a whole bunch of new characters. Some of them act who we've discussed before in the series, in this series, and some who are new to the to this podcast, and who will go on to do other significant superhero work. We have Parker Posey as the film's secondary antagonist. Oh, antagonist starts out as primary, becomes secondary. Danica Talos Posey had previously been in Superman Returns as the Miss Tessmacher, for lack of a better term, to. Kevin Spacey's Luther. Though her character's name was not Miss Tessmacher, she was in a similar position. Though with less of a moral compass than the original Miss Tessmacher in the first Superman film. Dominic Purcell appears as Drake, who is basically Dracula. And he's explicitly stated as being Dracula. But he's going out of the name of Drake in this film. Purcell has basically been a muscle character in a whole bunch of movies and TV shows prior to this. He had been in Mission Impossible 2 as Auric. He was the character of Seamus in Equilibrium. And if you don't remember those characters, that's okay. I barely remember those characters from those films. And there are characters from those films who, to be clear, I do remember. And is probably best known currently as the actor who plays Heatwave on Legends of Tomorrow and The Flash. In fact, this is probably the film with the most actors who would go on to other better superhero work after this. We have Ryan Reynolds playing Hannibal King in a superhero film pre 
Wolverine Origins, who is now better known as for, for playing Deadpool in terms of her superhero work. And we get in his performance some a sort, of, sort of an early glimpse of what we get with Deadpool in terms of very well done improvised insult comedy. None of which of the memorable lines I can repeat on this podcast if I want to avoid an explicit tag. There is, well, Patton Oswalt as Hedges, who is one of sort of the advisors behind the Night Stalkers, we'll get to in a moment. Oswalt is currently known for his contributions to Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., among other superhero-related work. So, getting into this cast stuff, we kind of get a situation where the film's heroic supporting cast really outshines the main cast of the film, the main actors and the main antagonists, with one notable exception. Reynolds is excellent as Hannibal King. The improvised lines he came up with for insult stuff works great. He's really funny, really charming. Jessica Biel does a very good job as Abigail Whistler. She is unfortunately underused in the film, but I do enjoy her work on screen. And I wish she'd gotten the same sort of, well, brought into better superhero projects than that Reynolds had gotten, that Purcell had gotten, that Patton Oswalt has gotten. And also on the antagonist side, probably the most noticeable antagonist character, actor in film, is Paul Levesque, whose last name I have horribly mangled, who plays the character of Jarko Grimwood, the big dumb muscle character with who likes, well, Paris Hilton-style handbag dogs, uh, with a who has a turned his Pomeranian into a vampire, basically because he wants to keep his Snooky Wookums with him. He doesn't refer to it as Snooky Wookums, but it's the way the character is played. It's clear that even if it's not stated in the text, I could see Paul kind of putting in his mind, okay, my character is the kind of character who would refer to his dog as a Snooky Wookums. Paul Levasque, of course, is best known as Triple H, professional wrestler, works, who's worked for various promotions, but has had the longest duration with the WWF, now the WWE. This is kind of his big screen debut in a significant role, as opposed to minor supporting roles or work on sketch comedy shows, or that sort of thing. So, the rest of the cast is actually shockingly meh, including Snipes and Christopherson. Snipes and Christopherson did a really good job in the last two films. In Blade 2 in particular, in the extended director's cut, there are some improvised scenes that Christopherson did that were really funny and really well done, and that that Del Toro wanted to put into the theatrical cut of the film, but couldn't for various reasons, including some of them are... The lines were kind of risque, probably might have been pushing it for the R rating, it sounds like. But here, he's kind of phoning it in. So is Wesley Snipes. This leads into the difficulties behind the scenes. Reportedly, Wesley Snipes and David Goyer did not get along at all. They clashed heavily on set. At one point... Snipes tried to fire Goyer, and around the same time, Goyer, anticipating this as an attempt of power play, took some of the crew, including the members of the supporting cast, like Patton Oswalt, out to a bar for dinner and drinks, and on the way back, hired some of the bikers in the bar, who weren't like biker gang members, but just bikers who looked tough, to come with him to pose as his bodyguards when dealing with Snipes. And various other issues like this. And 
the general discussion I've heard from people who are aware that this film, aware of what was going on behind the scenes, is that it is a miracle that this film came out at all in any sort of vaguely coherent fashion. And I would describe this film as vaguely coherent. It's somewhat coherent, but not structured well. And the, and I think while all the problems behind the scenes certainly didn't help, when it comes to narrative structure of the film, unless Snipes had been actively adjusting with the script to just, or pushing for changes to the script to such a degree that he was actively affecting the, how the script was written, then the, then I have to lay all the blame for how the story is structured at the feet of David S. Goyer. I mean, yes, if he's reached a situation where he can't work with Wesley Snipes, and he has to adjust the storyline to something that's less Snipes-focused than um, less, less Blade-focused, I get that um, that adjustment and needing to do a sort of authorial saving throw to save versus prima donna actor, but you still are in the position where you are responsible for making the story changes, and you're the only person working on this. It's not, again, like some other films which we've discussed on this very podcast, where there is a list of screenwriters on the film with written by, with and credits, with, with the word and, and credits with an ampersand, as long as my arm. There is no real major executive meddling or script doctoring going on here. David S. Goyer is the only WGA-credited author on this film. For better or for worse, the state of this film lies in his lap, lies in his hands. So, what is this film's plot? That's complicated. On the one hand, we have the vampires trying to take out Blade one last time, and this time bringing in the oldest vampires, the forefather vampire, Drake, who is Dracula, but who is also apparently dates back, a vampire so old he dates back to before Christ to take out Blade, and also to grant vampires the ability to go out in the daylight and that sort of thing, apparently. So, already we're at a weird shift here where we've, where we're not sure whether we're bringing out the big guns to take out Blade once and for all, or we're bringing out the big guns to give us all cosmic, give all vampires cosmic power, or the vampires have this sort of weird master plan involving humans in basically blood bags as part of some sort of magical ritual thing, a la La Magra again. So, there's that weirdness. On the other side, we have the introduction of the Night Stalkers, or, yeah, the Night, the Night Stalkers, which feels like we're tap dancing on copyright infringement with, or trademark infringement with Capcom category, with a group of vampire hunters who Blade is forced to team up with after his supposed support group is taken care of. And by support group, I mean Whistler's killed. And Blade having to meet these new people and the Night Stalkers going up against the vampire hierarchy to get revenge and that sort of thing. Or, this whole plot could also be related to Blade killing a familiar in front of a camera, thus leading to a nationwide manhunt by the FBI with Blade on the run, in spite of the fact that in the first film, Blade killed a not insignificant number of familiars over the course of just that film, in addition to also killing vampires. So, I really don't know. It was maybe a situation where that killing of familiars was brushed under the table because Blade also killed Deacon Frost, and Deacon Frost was going to 
flipped the table in a way that the vampire hierarchy was not okay with, and Blade Two, same sort of thing. Still, who'd have thought this nationwide manhunt would have already started? But we still could have gotten something in terms of Blade being how all the public views Blade, or Blade's existence coming out in the public, and the question of do the are the vampires with their revealing of Blade are they inadvertently shooting themselves in the foot by calling Blade this terrorist and serial killer, but ultimately having him, having people who know the truth of what's going on, revealing, secretly letting out that, oh, there are actually vampires here and creating a new support network for Blade, particularly with the vampire hierarchy and the vampire power structure being predominantly white and Blade being African-American, an idea that was actually used somewhat in the first film and then quickly forgotten for two and three. Yes, I'm bringing this up again. I'm kind of bitter. There was a good narrative idea here, but it was gone now. They eliminated it. So there's that side of things. And so with all of this, and all these concepts and narrative ideas that the film tries to do, none of it really works. Because of the conflicts with Wesley Snipes, we don't have enough blade on camera necessarily for him to really be at the forefront though he certainly has some really good action scenes the fight choreographer for this one's just shifted to chuck jeffries who is kind of a step down from you know the last movie being choreographed by donnie yen but it's still a fairly well done choreography it's could be better but it's again when you're following up donnie yen you're kind of restricted in how good the choreography can be. Also, I mean, let's be fair, he was involved in the first film, so he has had experience doing fight choreography for Wesley Snipes before. So there's that. I, I kind of appreciate the narrative shift to the Night Stalkers, but unfortunately, if the case of... if the shift of the Night Stalkers is brought on because of the tensions between Goyer and Snipes, then consequently... It does explain somewhat by the why the Night Stalker's plotline is somewhat half-assed and poorly executed and kind of slapped in, but it could have been done better, I like to think. That said, the situation did create for some good and interesting situations here. This led to this is what led to Goyer as a director pushing Reynolds to improvise more, leading to some really well done and hilarious insult moments and throw it in anecdotes that Ryan Reynolds did in the story, in the film, which leads to kind of this undercurrent underneath the surface of what we would get with Deadpool. And you definitely see here why, when watching this film, people, when the idea came out of, oh, Ryan Reynolds wants to play Deadpool, particularly when compared to some of his other films from around this time, people were up for that. Prior to Blade Trinity... Ryan Mills was known for a guest appearance on the X-Files. He was known for Two Guys, A Girls, and Pizza, Pace, Pizza Place. He was known for guest appearance on Scrubs. He was known for romantic comedies and comedy series and occasional guest starring roles on TV show work. He hasn't known for doing action films yet, and his work in Blade Trinity definitely makes it clear that this is a guy who can do action movies and who can do funny action movies, and he, he could and should do films like this. Now, the films we got after this, and some of his work after this, did not fit into that necessarily very well. We got him in Smoke and Aces, which is a more dramatic, sort of neo-noir pastiche kind of film, which didn't quite necessarily work. Then a whole bunch of 
comedy films in between Green Lantern and X-Men Origins Wolverine. Stuff like The Proposal, stuff like Adventureland, that sort of thing. So, Reynolds did a good job, though. I appreciate his work. I enjoyed his work. Otherwise, as far as this film goes, in spite of its brief moments of promise with the Night Stalkers, and I get what Goyer's trying to do with the Night Stalkers, Chris Christopherson is an aging actor, certainly. And it creates a situation where if they want to, where they can write Chris Christopherson out of the series in a way that lets him go out gracefully and introduce a new group of supporting characters who can care, who can help work as a supporting cast in their own right for future films, for better or worse. And I think if this script had gotten a few more revisions, if Goyer had just sat down and fleshed things out a bit more, if he and Blade, he and Snipes had worked together, I almost called him Blade because Snipes got so method on this film notoriously that he, when Goyer and Snipes were at their most not talking to each other phase, they were communicating in basically sticky notes and scribbled notes with Snipes signing his Blade. So if Goyer and Snipes were actually getting along and they didn't have to just scrap the script as much and do as much heavy rewriting, this film could have been done well. This could have been a film which would set up additional movies with the Night Stalkers as a major, as a major focus, or even assuming in this alternate timeline that Wesley Snipes still ended up going to jail for tax evasion and was thus not available to do Blade films for a while, we still could have gotten a Night Stalkers films, and the Night Stalkers could have potentially carried a film on their own, particularly with Ryan Reynolds being a very good actor with good screen presence and a good comedic position on screen. Instead, this film tanked at the box office, was critically panned, Wesley Snipes didn't want to work on any more Blade films anymore, and even then, even if they could have gotten him to come back, he then went to jail, Snipes then went to jail for tax evasion. So, let's look at the box office figure, since we're talking about how that, that it did poorly. According to Box Office Mojo, the film has an estimated production budget of $65 million. Now, our rule of thumb is that a film's domestic total gross needs to be equal to twice the film's production budget. Though I am willing to fudge things if the wor- film's worldwide gross is a little above that, say, two and a half to three times the uh, film's production budget. To make up for the fact that, as time has gone on, international box office has become more and more of a major role in how well a film performs. This is why we've gotten, for example, why we're getting, for example, a sequel for Need for Speed, not because it did well in the United States, it didn't, but because it did really well in China, and those Chinese filmmakers, well, Chinese production studios were willing to bankroll a sequel with an increased Chinese cast. So, how well did this film do domestically? Not well. The film's domestic total gross is fifth, um, according to Box Office Mojo, is around $52.5 million. A little under $52.5 million. So you are already losing money. You are under your production budget. This is before we were counting into people's take of the gross. This is before we get into expenditures spent on marketing the film, promotional costs, that sort of thing. We're, we're already under the production budget. Now, if you include the foreign box office, we get to a worldwide lifetime gross of 128, about 129 million dollars. So, with a 65 million dollar budget, we're still a little low. Like for a 65 million dollar budget, 
you need something along the lines of 130 million. So you are just shy. And that's with twice the production, but twice your production budget. This is not the like 2.5 times the production budget that I like for my rule of thumb if you're doing international gross. So this film did not do well enough to justify a sequel. Combine that with New Line's own financial problems that came up after this. Combine this with Wesley Snipes going to jail for tax evasion. You have a situation that leads to no new Blade movies. Now, there was an attempt to try and revive the franchise again after the fact with the Blade live-action television series that was made for Spike TV, which is a degree of tragedy in its own way, right? Because from by all accounts, I missed it at the time because I didn't have cable at that time. The film did well, or the film, the television series did well, but it did well with the wrong people. If you're at the time, Spike TV was very heavily promoting itself as a television network for men. And that's the advertisers who were advertising network were advertising products for a male audience. So, like, think like the Axe body spray, body spray crowd. The Blade Trinity television series went back to some of the things of the first film that I liked with a more African-American-focused supporting cast with the secondary character, the audience-respective character, being an African-American woman, sort of like in the original Blade. And what happened, though, is the show got a very strong, passionate, recurring, returning audience of women, which, while this led to the show doing one of the, becoming one of the highest rated television programs on Spike TV, because the demographics were so heavily female, it was not meshing with what the, what Spike TV wanted their audience to be for their advertisers, and so they canceled the show after a one 12 episode half season, which is a crying shame. So, aside from that, we haven't gotten that much more Blade since then. We got a Blade animated anime series as part of the Marvel anime project done by Marvel and Studio Madhouse. Blade has off and on gotten a resurgence in Marvel Comics, thanks to the film series. And for lack of anything else, occasionally Blade has shown up in some of the modern Marvel kids animated stuff as well. Um, he even had a brief storyline in the Ultimate Spider-Man animated series, looking very much like the character from the films, which is in its own way somewhat hilarious because it's a character from an R-rated series of films appearing in a kid's television series in the guise of the character from the films, which I find kind of neat. So, is Blade Trinity worth watching? Not really. It's kind of worth watching with Friend in that this film is kind of a train wreck sort of sense. There's enough really good lines related to Ryan Reynolds' character that makes it worth coming back, but that's pretty much it. So, thank you very much for wa for listening to the show. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please rate, review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or whatever for podcasting site that your aggregation site that you got the show through. Please also check out our other shows on the Bureau 42 Podcast Network, including Blaine Dowler's comic book physics podcast and his x-files retrospective podcast as well as the upcoming make me watch it podcast which will be coming up once silver screen superheroes wraps after a couple episodes hosted by blaine who'll be returning shortly other than that please go to bureau42.com and check out the various content on the site as well thank you very much for listening and next time we will have the return of blaine dowler
to the podcast. So thank you very much for hanging along with me as I go as I've gone through the show. And I you may hear me again in the future on the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast, which is available for through the Bureau 42 Master Podcast audio feed. Once again, thank you. <laughs>